In this episode, we wait out there for part two of our conversation with Dylan Tomina from Washington State. Dylan was one of those children who always loved fish and fishing. He developed a love of steelhead at an early age and has spent most of his life fly fishing. He is a passionate angler, Patagonia ambassador, conservationist, and writer. His books include Headwaters, The Adventures, Obsession, and Evolution of a Fly Fisherman, and Closer to the Ground, an outdoor family's year on the water, in the woods, and at the table. Dylan was a producer of the film Artificial and played an important role in the films Damnation and Chrome. We discuss steelhead tactics on the Olympic Peninsula, including reading water, presentation, and fighting fish. We also talk about steelhead conservation and the challenges facing these fish. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. So when I remember being a kid going out to the rivers in, in Washington, so different than, in my perception, different than rivers, Western rivers, like trout waters, you know, they're, they're just different. They're different color. They run different flows. You know, it's just a different kind of, animal to me. And I, and I should say, I don't have any experience steelhead fishing, but can you talk a little bit to reading water and the importance of, um, first kind of like the river itself, like flows and color and things like that. And then maybe a little bit on reading that water. Yeah. I think, you know, steelhead fishing is, is, is sort of a really different subspecies of fly fishing in general, because I think, you know, most most fly fishing is very visual. So, you know, you see trout rising and then you're trying to figure out what bug they're eating or, um, you know, you see bonefish on the flats and you're trying to get in position to cast to them or, um, you know, there's a real strong visual component of actually seeing the fish. Right. Even in, even in nymphing, even when nymphing, I feel like there's just like, you can visualize seams and rocks and, and like, it just seems like smaller and more digestible, I guess, you know? Yeah. And you even, you know, even if you're nymphing deep, you'll be looking for flashes of fish turning when they're feeding or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and steelhead fishing is really unique in that it's, it's mostly, you know, blind fishing. Like, you know, it's based on faith. You have to believe that there's fish in the water you're fishing, but a lot of the time there's no proof that they're there. Um, you know, and so I think that makes it really different. And so I would argue that it's still visual, but what you're looking at is the cues from the river itself that would make one place more likely to hold a steelhead than another. Um, and, and a lot of it is the same as trout fishing in that, you know, steelhead like to hold in seams. They like to hold in tail outs. They like to be, um, you know, in walking speed water that's choppy on the surface, you know, choppy on the surface, meaning that there's big rocks on the bottom, um, and not too fast. So people often describe it as walking speed and, you know, you, it's different steelhead hold in a lot of places that you can't fly fish for them very well. Um, you know, and so you'll see like under heavy rapids, there's quiet water down at the bottom and with a big fat fly line, like you just can't fish that. But if you're, if you have pencil lead and a corky and a casting rod, you can sink it down through that fast water and catch them. So in a given river, there's a lot less fly water for steelhead than there is places where steelhead are. And so you're looking for a combination of where the steelhead would lie in combination with water speed and depth that you can fish as a fly fisherman. Does that mean that you're moving more? I mean, is it, is it you find one of those places that you think, and then you, you fish to it until in your words, like you have to believe that there's fish there. Right. And then I don't believe it anymore. And then I move on to the next one. Usually you, 
you try and cover it all. So like, you know, if you come out at the river and there's a nice run and so there's like, let's say there's a little seam at the top between fast water and kind of froggy water. And in the middle, it evens out and it's choppy and even flow. And then at the tail out, it gets shallower and gathers and then it's over. Right. It's looking fishy. Yeah. So you, you would start at the top and try and fish that seam between the real fast and real slow water because they'll hold in that. And then as it broadens out, the current broadens out and there's not much of a seam, but it's, if it's choppy and three or four feet deep, you know, you'll swing your fly through all of that. And then at the tail out, it starts to pick up and you'll fish through that. And then, then you're done, you know, and with that spot and then you're looking. Yeah. And the way I steelhead fish is, you know, with a swung fly and mostly these days with a sink tip. And so it's really, you cast, you make your mend. You take a step or two downstream, let it come tight and swing. And then when it's below you, you cast again and you take a couple, you make your men take a couple steps. And it's sort of this pattern of covering all this water because you don't really know where the fish are going to be. And um, unlike trout fishing where you may, um, you know, come to the river, you watch the fish for a while, they're rising, you try and figure it out and, you know, you see the fish you want to cast to and you know with steelhead fishing it's more like you're searching you know and so you're just trying to cover the water and and so for uh, I, I there's a lot of reasons why people who really love trout fishing don't really like steelhead fishing <laughs> um, okay you know, one of them is that is that it feels kind of unfocused and untargeted because you're not fishing for a specific fish that you know where it is you're searching right uh, And then, you know, and then the other reason is, you know, a good day trout fishing, you probably catch a bunch of fish and a good day steelhead fishing, you might hook one. Right. Do you, Um, do you feel that these spots that you find or these runs or they, they like, um, do you start to kind of develop patterns where you're, you know, or at least this is, I've caught more fish out of this one than that one, or these are, oh, yeah. these are the places, these are the good ones, or it's, it's, there is some benefit to putting the time in and the experience, right? Especially, especially with a certain water uh, fishery. Yeah, for sure. Because there's things I think that are hidden from the human eye of why one pool that feels almost exactly the same, right. Holds more fish than another one, you know, and it could be because, downstream of that pool so it could be that that there's it could be that there's structure downstream that makes them want to rest in that pool like when you're steelhead fishing you're fishing for migratory fish so you have to kind of account for what's below you and above you that makes this place it's not just the pool itself it's not that seam yeah it's not like this brown trout this one brown trout this is his neighborhood and this is where he goes when he feels threatened and you can go catch the same brown trout, you know, the next year or, you know, the, the, there's, I've definitely caught the same fish before. And yeah, they're, they're, the steelhead are moving around. They're, it's not that kind of a game, right? Yeah. And because they're moving around where they are may have something to do with, you know, if there's high water, the fish are traveling, they move on high water. Um, they generally would like to stay out of the main flow. And so then you're, you know, in high water, you're fishing much shallower and closer to the bank because that's where the fish will travel and hold. Um, and then in low water, they want to be in the deeper, faster stuff for safety and protection. And so, um, so it's actually a lot easier to fish for steelhead in high water than low water because you can, um, you know, it's easier to fish those soft pieces close to the bank it doesn't require the same kind of getting it out there type stuff. Well, not the distance so much as being able to get your fly down into like heavy current is difficult. Right? Got it. Um, and so I think that, so it's conditions, um, it's what's above you and below you. And then it's the specific pieces that, you know, you really want a seam or a steady flow that's walking speed and three or four feet deep and, you know, rocks like rocks, the size of bowling balls is good. On the bottom, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've read about uh, water clarity and you know the effects of rain, especially on the peninsula, the Olympic Peninsula and stuff. So that's kind of my data point. Or, but how can you speak to that a little bit about how one day 
the weather conditions besides like flow levels high and low, which you covered, but just, I don't know. Is that something you think about or like this river is more clear than that river? It just seemed like when I read about that, I was like, okay, there's a lot that goes into the, the, just the clarity of the water. Yeah. So water level is everything in steelhead fishing. I mean, I could talk about this for three months if you wanted, I'd bore you to death, but, um, yeah. So the water can, the condition of the river itself is, is, is critical. And to me, as I was saying earlier, like high water is much easier to fish because you can fish shallower, um, and the fish will hold closer to the bank. Um, when the water gets low, they're in the deeper troughs and it's harder to get the fly to fish in that faster water in the deeper flows. Um, and then also the longer the water's dropping, like our rivers out here are always either, they're either dropping or rising. There's very few times where they're just steady flow. Really? Okay. So if we don't get rain day after day, the river drops a few inches each day, each day, each day. And those fish on dropping water aren't really traveling that much. And so they start to get stale. They're less aggressive. Um, Steelhead are more aggressive when they've just arrived at a new spot. Okay. So, um, so that said, um, steelhead generally don't bite very well on rising water either. And so the ideal time is when it first starts to drop and clear. So, you know, if you have rain and the river comes up and turns brown, as it starts to drop, the first day that it's like a green with two or three feet of visibility is usually my favorite time to fish. Like that's when I want to go. It's still pretty high but it's dropping and lowering, lowering. And, um, steelhead also, I don't feel like you want real clear water when the water's clear. It means that it hasn't rained for a long time and they haven't moved a bunch. So they're less aggressive. Um, and they're spookier, you know, they'd rather be under the, the edges of the white water and places that are hard to fish. So the gear guys continue to do really well. In fact, sometimes do better as the water drops because a fish are concentrated in the deepest, fastest water. But for the fly fishermen, I really like it when the river spreads out and the fish are moving around. Um, and so the Olympic Peninsula is really an interesting example because, I mean, that's sort of my home waters here. And um, you have options at different rivers. Yeah. And that's what I was, that's the article I was reading about is that, you know, it, it rained more here than there, or this one looks, it's been fresher. It was almost like a tide table, like reading the tides or something where it's like, where are we at in the water levels? And what does that mean for what it looks like to the fish? Yeah. So the Ho and the Queets rivers on the peninsula are glacial fed. So they always run with more color and can go out. Like they can turn brown really easily with rain. So if you, let's say you have the same amount of rain across the Olympic peninsula um, the, the first fishable river is usually like the Solduck or the Kalawa cause they're, um, they're not glacial fed. Oh, okay. Intact, uh, rainforest that absorbs the water better. So if everything went out, everything turned Brown, the first fishable rivers are those rivers that aren't glacial fed and come from places that aren't clear cut really heavily. And so, those will be fishable. And as those start to get too low and too clear, then the glacial rivers like the Ho or the lower Bogashiel, which isn't glacial, but um, it's affected by a mudslide. So as the Solduck and the Ho or the Solduck and the Kalawa, which are clear water rivers, start to get too clear, yeah, the rivers that tend to run dirtier start to get perfect. Now they're clearing up, yeah. So now they're starting to clear up. And, you know, like I said, I really like to fish in four feet, three feet, two feet of visibility. So when the Solduck has five, six, seven feet of visibility, it feels too clear to me. But I know if I go down to the Bogashiel below the slide, it'll still have some color in it. And the hoe, because it's glacial fed, will still have some color in it. And so you can kind of move from river to river uh, according to the conditions, if you have the time to drive, I mean, they're, they're all kind of, they're not right next to each other. So it involves some travel time, but yeah, that. I feel like you're almost describing like a surfer, like reading the waves and like where the different conditions are like after a storm, before a storm or tides and things like that affecting yeah. like well, that. 
it's funny you bring that up because I, I was uh, in Hawaii with my kids this winter and um, both my kids love to surf. Like they're crazy about surfing. That's all like, how did they get into surfing what, out in Washington um, down just, the Oregon coast? I surfed on the Oregon coast once. Yeah, no, they mostly have picked it up from just from the trips when we've been in places like Hawaii, you know, and yeah. for some reason it really, particularly my son, my daughter really loves it too, but particularly my son has, is just like, you know, crazy for it. And so when we were there this winter, um, there was always like, you can go to the known spots, but it's been going to be crowded. But I wonder if, you know, and so we started looking at tide tables and wind charts, and then looking at maps and saying, well, this point here looks, it faces the same direction as this other beach where there was good waves. So let's go see if there's a surfable wave there. And it was just like steelhead fishing. Like we were trying <laughs> to test the conditions you know, and you'd try and go, oh, on this swell direction, this place is not working, but it's working over here, you know, and it's very, um, it's, I had like this sort of nostalgic thing. Like I felt like I was steelhead fishing, even though we were, we were searching for waves. Yeah. And how long does that take from like, how long is that cycle before even the traditionally, or even the more muddy rivers or, or more colored up rivers? before that all washes out and now it's kind of too clear all over or, you know, how, how long does that cycle take and um, how often does that happen typically based on rain? And cause it rains a yeah. ton. Out. It's a, it's a rainforest of the Olympic peninsula, right? Yeah. There's almost always rain out there in the winter. Like, I mean, that's winter steelhead fishing. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of just a movable beast. Like you just right. don't, know on any given day and i mean there's been plenty of times i've looked at the you know the cubic feet per second on the computer and the rain forecast and the radar i mean i got a million apps <laughs> on my phone for steelhead fishing but there's been a million times the command talk, center the steelhead fishing yeah, command like center. a million times though where i look at all that stuff and go okay this river is going to be on i'm going there and i go there and it it's blown out or it's not you know i mean it's just if you don't live on the river, it's really hard to know exactly, but modern technology has made it easier because, um, you know, you don't just look at the rain gauge at your house and try and decide what to do. We have like real time updates of stream flows and, you know, the USGS water flow tables that are available online for almost every river. Um, they even show clarity. They show, um, you know, whether it's rising or falling and how much it is. And, you know, I think if you keep track of those things, either in your mind or you write it down, eventually you start to get a feel for, okay, when this river is at 2,700 CFS, if it's more than, you know, if it's more than 1,700 CFS and below 3,700 CFS, it's going to fish real good um, as long as it's dropping or whatever, you know, you start to get an idea and then I think you can kind of plan your days, but it's, it's not an exact science. I mean, I screw that up all the time. And <laughs> well, it's patterns, pattern recognition and just kind of getting a feel for it through time and experience and things. Yeah. And I, I think just like the peninsula is nice because you know, like if you get to one river and it's blown out, you can probably go to a different river and it'll be just right. Or if one river is too low, the other river will fish. Um, that said, if we have the pineapple express and it's been pouring rain for three days, everything will be, you might as well right. just stay home, just stay know? home and tie flies. But when the rain stops, then it's just a matter of when the different ones come into good shape. Can you talk a little bit more about presentation? And you mentioned the importance of kind of having a different rig, certainly than trout fishing, but also you're talking about the weight and weighted lines. And is it, is it really just as simple as kind of you know, finding, we talked about reading water, but you're saying cast, swing and move. And then is that really what you're doing? Are there other things that you're doing or considering in presentation besides fly selection, I guess? Um, you know, from the outside, it very much looks like the definition, the popular definition of insanity, right? That you're, you're repeating the same motion over and over and again, hoping for a different outcome, but there's little subtleties as, you know, so if you start at the top, traditional steelhead fishing on a swung fly, you start at the top of the pool, 
and you make a couple steps between each cast and swing until you've covered the whole pool, which is what we were talking about before. But there's little subtleties between, like if you feel like you're not getting deep enough, you can make your mend and then make your two steps downstream, which gives it longer to sink. If you're starting to hang up on the bottom, you can make your steps, then cast and mend, and it won't sink as deeply. Uh. Uh, that's like one example. Or another example is at the top of the run, the close part of your line is landing in slow water. Like let's say there's that seam we talked about and in close is real, like hardly any flow and out there is real fast flow. You might want to cast kind of upstream and not mend knowing that the close belly of your line is in the slow water and the fat, the fly and the sink tip is out in the fast water. So it'll still come together and make a nice arc to swing through. When you're in an even flow, you want to make a bigger mend so that you can, you're trying to achieve the same arc where the fly is swimming across the current towards the bank, but you have to mend differently according to how the different current speeds. That makes, that makes sense. That makes sense. When you're casting and you're going to fish through this seam, I mean, it's really the, it's not like you're fishing to the bank. It sounds like you don't necessarily have to reach the other side of the river to fish, to fish through an area. You just need to be on the other side of that area to fish through it. So it's not as important to, it's almost, is that true or I don't know? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, most of the steelhead rivers, it's too far to cast all the way across to the other bank anyway. But even sure. in the rivers where you can, you can't fish very well because between you and the slow water on the far bank, there's real fast water. Yeah. So what that means is if you met cast out, and even if you make a huge bend, the fat part of your floating line is in that heavy current, it's going to belly out and just whip your fly through the other side. So you're not really fishing till the fly slows down on your side of the river. And so there's exceptions to it, but you almost, it's almost impossible to fish anything that is slower on the far side of faster water. Yeah. I found that frustrating when I, I did fish a little bit in some of these rivers, um, like uh i don't know last september maybe i don't i forget what what run it was but i was down in mccord and there's a river that runs south of um tacoma by mccord air force base that i was fishing on base actually and oh the nisqually yeah the nisqually and it was frustrating because of exactly what you just described i'm trying to fish it like a trout stream kind of and it looks really fishy on the far bank on the other side and I'm just not getting, I, I know what I, I feel like I know what it should, a, a good swing should look like, you know? And it's like, I'm not really fishing that though. I'm not really swinging my fly through that. It's just kind of like ripped out of there real quick. And yeah. And so, so really, I think if the fishy water and the good seam or the good soft water is on the other side, you got to fish it from the other side. Just get to the other side. Yeah. 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 And so that, it, I mean, most of our rivers, if you spend enough time that you can figure out ways to walk into the right side of the river. Yeah. Uh, but it's a lot easier if you're floating, if you're in a raft or a drift boat, because then you can just pick which side to go to. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you, uh, you know, f wade fishing or drift boat fishing. Do you have a preference or one works better than the other? And that makes a lot of sense because you, you can cover more water, but you can, you can hit both sides easier, I guess. Yeah. And so I think like a good thing to think about for steelhead fishing. And this is, I'm not talking at all about fishing beads or nymphs under a bobber, like under a strike indicator. I'm just talking about sort of the traditional wet fly swing. Yeah. I was just swinging the flies out there. I had a couple flies they gave me at the fly shop in gig Harbor and you know. Yeah. So I think you want to think about when your line and your fly lands after you cast that, the fly should be in the fastest water when it lands, when it lands. Okay. And if it's landing somewhere beyond the fastest water, unless you do some real tricky men's and can keep line off the water, it's just going to whip around and you're yeah. not even fishing over there. Yeah. 
So that's sort of, I think that's kind of a key to, to steelhead fishing. So it's going to cast into kind of the fast water relative to this fishy water that we've talked about. And then it's a, a, a mend upstream and then let it swing through kind of. Yeah. If the current's pretty even, it's just an upstream. mend. if you're, if the water near you is real slow and it's kind of fast out there, sometimes it's an upstream mend to straighten out your tip and get the line, the fly below the line. Okay. But then yeah. sometimes you have to make a small mend in the slow water that's downstream so that it will help make that belly. So the you just kind of keep that belly going through and mending to make that happen. Yeah. Yep. Versus a natural quote, natural drift that you're mending for with like a dry fly fishing trout. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you want tension on the fly. You're trying to swim the fly across the current and towards the bank you're standing on. All right. And I don't know if this makes sense. It makes tons of sense. It makes a lot of sense to me. And one of the benefits of me hosting this podcast is that I get to learn a ton. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you kind of, uh, talking to me, play, um, humoring me a little bit with the tactics here. Cause I love talking tactics. What one last thing on presentation I'll ask is, um, just a little, a little bit, if you could share a little bit about the, the setup, the rig, you know, I, I, I guess it, I, I would, I would imagine that it depends on the river and such, but maybe not as much, maybe a little bit on like the fly rod and weight, but more on the, the line and the tippet and the sink tip and like, and are you changing that a lot? Do you go out to the day with, this is what I'm going to use. Are you changing different sink tips often or. Um, probably should, but I hate changing sink tips cause it's such a pain in the butt. Um, yeah. so I, well, okay. So traditionally around here, most of the steelhead fishing is winter steelhead fishing and you're fishing with a sink tip. Um, in which case I usually fish with a two handed rod. Um, generally, you know, a seven weight with a Skagit type line, which is a really short, heavy belly, you know, it's like thick, um, with a sink tip and the sink tips, you know, Rio makes some really good tips now that you can buy, um, a series of tips that weigh the same, but have varying lengths of the sinking part of them. So they're all 10 feet long, but some of them it's 10 feet of sink. Some of it's seven feet, some of it's five feet, some of it's two feet, right? And so you, because for spay casting, you need the line to be the same length. So you have like a little wallet with, with five different sink tips in it, and they're all 10 feet long. They all weigh the same number of grains, but they have different amounts of them are sinking versus not sinking. Okay. But they're the same uh, lengths. They're the same length. They're all 10 feet long. These are the, like, just for example, the Rio Mo tips. Uh, the MOW tips. Um, I think they come in 10 foot sink and then seven and a half foot sink with two and a half uh, float and then five feet sink, five feet float, and then seven and a half feet of float with two and a half feet of sink. And so you could, you know, a wallet like that, you can fish almost anything. Got it. And, um, but most of the time, like around here, I think in the winter time, you know, I'm usually fishing the seven and a half feet of sinking or the five feet of sinking. Um, and then that would go to, you know, five feet of Maxima 15 pound test ultra green, like gear fishing line is my leader. I don't, I don't use a tapered leader. I just use a straight piece of 15 pound Maxima, um, and then put the fly on there. And then, um, if I can manage to fish that close to the bottom without hanging up all the time through different kind of mending, then I'll stick with it. If I'm hanging up all the time, I'll put a shorter sink tip on. Okay. Any observations fighting these fish that you could speak to about? Cause I know there's lots of stories in the book where <laughs> you catch a fish and then it's like, and then I ran and then I started running, you know, like then I'm running and, uh, so is that, is that typical kind of, you got to get your, get ready for that? Yeah. You know, and part of it is when you finally do hook a steelhead, there's such a crazy rush of adrenaline that you're pretty much freaking out anyway. I mean, I, I don't know how many steelhead I've hooked in my life, but it's been a lot. And every time I start to get the grab when, you know, cause when I'm swinging the fly, it's on a tight line 
and the running line is under my forefinger. So I have a direct connection to feeling what the fly, and I mostly do that because then you can really feel if it's starting to go into rocks, you can back off and not hang up. Yeah. But it also means that when you get a bite, when the fish grabs the fly, you can feel like, like it's electric, right? And every time that happens for me, even now, after all these years, I feel this like hot surge of adrenaline in my gut and, you know, your knees start shaking. And I mean, it's unbelievable. And that's why we do it. And so, you know, if you come up tight on it and the fish starts to run and it starts getting far away, the farther away they are from you, the greater the chance they're going to get off the hook. So usually you want to try and stay close to them if you can. So it's kind of standard fish fighting tactics, but it's just amplified because this is my one shot. Oh my gosh. And then, you know, it's really, and they're such vicious fighters you know they're they're acrobatic and they're making huge runs and stuff so yeah they jump and they run and they're beautiful you want to land them just so you can see them up close like back to my childhood because they're so beautiful and uh, you know i think you know changes because we're mostly fishing with two-handed rods that you know holding a two-handed rod vertically you have very little leverage on the fish because it's, you know, it's 14 or 13 or 12 feet of kind of wobbly graphite. Right. So, so I, you know, when you're trying to move the fish, like when it's running, you just hang on, like just hang on. But when they stop running and you want to try and move them towards you, I find that it's a lot helpful to have the rod down into the downstream side of the bank. So you're pulling sideways against them rather than upwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one thing that I think about. Um, the other thing I think about is you should always either be gaining or losing line. Like you don't want to get in a stalemate with them where they're just sitting in one place. Why is that? Just makes the fight longer and they're more likely to get off. uh, I've found that out here every time. I've never heard anybody say it like that. Always gaining or losing line. And I'm definitely going to take that one away because every time that, I I know it's going to happen. I can feel it happening. Like when that line stops and it's like, I'm trying to move the fish or it's like, nothing's happening. He's not going anywhere and I'm not doing anything. I can feel that fish breaking off and it's like, I got to do something, make something happen. And yeah, it's a little different for us because with 15 pound Maxima, you're never going to break the fish off. Like, you know, and so it's not, you're not trying to protect the tippet, but usually what happens if you lose a steelhead is when they're not running, and you're not gaining on them, they start doing this crazy wiggling, like, like spinning around kind of thing in one place. And then, so the hook angle is changing all the time and it'll just come out of their mouth. So to sort of minimize that, I think when they stop running, you should be yarding them in. Like, you know, you should be pulling back and reeling down, pulling back and reeling down. When they start to go, you let go and let them go again. But the, if you're in a stalemate and they're in one place and you're not gaining or losing line, you're probably, if that goes on for very long, you're probably going to lose the fish. Well, that's a really good point. And I would totally mess that up. I, I would be more concerned, you know, with breaking off or something like that, you know, but you, you've set yourself up to, that's not going to happen. I got the right gear and we're going to get this done. So it's a little easier to be aggressive. Maybe it's different if, if, you know, if you're on the Henry's fork and you have a five pound trout on and you're fishing seven X tippet, you probably can't yard them in, you know, right, and yeah. then, then there's a little sort of different equation going on. But with steelhead fishing, the other piece of it is if you're always either gaining or losing line, um, you beat the fish faster. And when you let them go, they're less tired. That makes sense. Dylan, I want to read something you've talked about, um, insanity this comes up in the book and you just mentioned the definition of insanity and, and some in this, this, there's a chapter in the book called commitment and you're talking about kind of how, when you explain to people steelhead fishing and they're like, so you just stand out in the cold and you might catch one fish and like, but then you just talked about how exciting it was. And so I thought I would read this to me. I think this is one of the best descriptions of that feeling of when you catch a big fish and why, you know, a response to the people that are like, so you just stand out in the river and that's it, you know? And so I'm going to read that if that's okay. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it. All right. So you, you've just casted to a, a, 
you've just cast it to the river and you're about to catch the fish and then you write then simultaneous explosions detonate in your brain your heart the surface of the river line peels off the reel in a furious blur shooting away downstream a hundred feet out and upstream a fish vaults into the air your fish synapses fire adrenaline pulses into veins line slices through current the fish greyhounds away punching new holes in the river while the previous holes are still while the previous holes are still open heat surges out of your chest and down your arms tingling frozen fingers the fish reverses course with a sharp downstream turn a brief loss of tension your heart stutters then a long screaming run punctuated by a cartwheeling leap that will remain frozen in your memory forever a brilliant slash of silver suspended in a halo of sparkling water drops illuminating the gray half-light two more slower shorter runs then the fish veers in close yielding to pressure now its thick body curved into the s shape of waning resistance as it passes beneath a slick in the surface a window opens revealing mottled amber rocks and a yard-long fish twisting and turning in the current your heart thumps a series of short writhing turns and it glides into the shallows at your feet you grip the broad wrist ahead of its tail, slip the hook out, and hold this incredible radiant creature for a brief moment of wonder. When you let go, it shoots away like a speedboat, tail churning a wake of water and foam. You are not cold, even though you are. You are not tired, even though you are. You are not hungry, even though you are. You feel better than you felt in a long time. Maybe ever. Insanity? If that's what this is, you'll take it. Try explaining that. So, like I said, first of all, I wanted to read that because I thought that it highlighted, like, you're a tremendous writer, super descriptive, beautiful. Thanks. And it really was, you know, it takes you there for people that have had the feeling of catching fish. It's like, wow, yes. But it also answers that question to people that are like, so this steelhead thing, you know, that doesn't sound, that sounds a little crazy. And it answers it in a way that is first obvious where it's like, oh, yeah, this is a very exciting thing. But then... The, the less obvious thing that you kind of put in there that people don't usually get the answer to is this thing where I'm not, you're tired, but I'm not tired. I'm cold, but I'm not cold. Like that I'm, I'm just right here in this moment. And it's, it's a powerful thing to be that focused and aware of everything that's going on. And like, there's no distractions and it's just this thing. And I think that that is something it is special about fly fishing, certainly special about the story that you told there, but just it's a reason why people go fly fishing. Even if you're not catching a giant steelhead, you know, it's, it's this part, it's this thing where you can go that I think people crave and yearn for where it's like, I'm just in the moment. I'm focused on something. It's something that I, I enjoyed about flying airplanes. You know, there's, I'm in the zone. I am focused. This is what I'm doing. And there's nothing else and there can't be anything else. Yeah, I think it's um, – I, I was thinking the other day about like – I like what you're talking about there about this sort of intensity of moments, you know, that block out other things. And um, this is sort of a weird analogy, but I was thinking like in regular modern adult life, we have very few occasions to like high-five each other, right? Like Like – you know, maybe if you play rec league basketball or something like that, but, but when you catch a fish and you high five your buddy or your kid or whatever it is, like that's kind of a intense peak moment that you don't have just going to work and washing dishes and mowing the lawn, you know? And, and so the idea of just like, yes, <laughs> that is, it's, um, you know, it's increasingly rare in adult life. And so I think to have those moments is really, you know, the moments where your heart is beating really hard and you feel that adrenaline rush. And, um, you know, I imagine as a fighter pilot that happens much more frequently in adult life than for a regular person. Um, you know, if you're an accountant or something, there's probably even less moments where in work you're going, yes, <laughs> you know, but so for me, like, I think those moments where it's the high five or the, even just to yourself, like, you know, when I land a steelhead and let it go, I mean, my hands shake for probably a half an hour of just like residual 
adrenaline drain out. And, and there's very few other things in life where I get that kind of excitement and intensity. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, from a purely selfish standpoint, I think there's a lot of value to that. Yeah. That's, that's very, uh, thoughtful. And I think that's true and couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. There is not many of those times. And so it's, it's, uh, instructive, I think, to look at your life and think about those times. What are the times where I, that's where I have had true joy. Like I can think back on when I was last filled with joy and like, how can I do more of those things? You know? Yeah. I went elk hunting this year and I'm on top of this mountain and I'm, I've been hiking through snow and wind and I'm cold and I'm looking out and I'm just like, that was one of those moments where I'm like, this is, I just want to be right here. Yeah. And I just, you know, those are clues to, well, maybe you should do more of that, Jason. Maybe you should get out there more. Well, yeah. I I mean, but part of that intensity comes from, from like the scarcity of it. True. True. You know, if you did it every day, eventually it would become, it would become old hat. And, you know, I, I mean, part of what's fun about steelhead fishing is you don't catch a ton of them. You know, if you caught steelhead on every third cast, there would be no adrenaline. There would be no dancing around like an <laughs> idiot. There'd be no high fives, you know, just be like, you know, I got another one, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, like we were saying earlier, like what makes a good day's fishing? Is it the day that you just catch a ton of cutthroat up in the mountains or is it the day you had to work for it and figure it out? Yeah. I I mean, even, I think it's in that story, but when I was guiding, um, one of the older guides told, he said, you know, the best days are where you catch one or two or three fish. If you catch 30 fish, it's not a great day. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, when somebody catches one fish in a day, they'll remember everything about catching that one fish. If they catch 30 fish, all they remember is the number 30. That's a, (laughs) that's awesome. I like that. You said you don't catch a ton of fish. And I think that's a good segue into kind of the last thing I want to talk to you about is that, you know, you're obviously passionate steelhead fisherman. um, And there's a phrase you use in the book several times called, uh, you say fishing for crumbs. And I think what you're referencing is the numbers of fish and how they've declined. And, um, you know, even when you have these good days, right, you catch one or two or three fish, like you're really, you're not in the same ballpark of, of where you, you might be if the fisheries were different. And so, um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting in the book that I enjoyed is not just that you highlight that, but also what I really enjoyed was really educating folks on like some of the win-win things that are out there that are like, well, you know, this, we know this doesn't work. Like we can, we can see that this doesn't work. Even some of the things that are like maybe good intentioned, you know, like the hatchery stuff or like they think this is a solution to the problem, but it's kind of like, well, we've tried that and it's not working. So let's try something else or let's do something different. You know, it's kind of like what you said, insanity. If we're, if we're doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result, it's not working. We need to try something else, you know? And so I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit and just some of those things like the method of fishing for salmon. And that was something that I learned too, is that the way that we fish for different species of salmon can be detrimental to, um, to the steelhead because of, you know, the netting that there's used and there's different methods to fish to them. And I guess I'm setting you up for a huge, this isn't really a question, I guess, but I just, you know, I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit to that and some of those solutions that you've seen that are kind of win-win in in the regards, especially to hatchery and to fishing for other species and things. I think, Yeah. I mean, the hatchery thing is really amazing to me because it is the definition of doing the same thing over and over again, (laughs) 150 years with steadily diminishing returns, you know? And, um, if you were an investment banker and you looked at the return on investment of the billions of dollars we spend on hatchery programs and that the returns are less and less decade after decade, yeah, you know, if you were a portfolio manager, you'd be fired. Yeah. CEO, you'd be fired. Um, you know, but because there's so much complex politics around these fisheries issues, especially in the Pacific Northwest, 
um, it's very difficult to get to a solution that actually works. Um, and you know, the hatcheries are a really prime example of that in that, um, yeah. Can you talk to the hatchery? Like, how is that, what, what, how does that process work and what's the intent? Because it's my understanding from the book that it's kind of introduced in a way to like help, right? It was meant to help. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That So, you know, for people, if you don't know the, the, the hatchery program for anadromous fish for salmon and steelhead, um, basically involves, uh, raising fish from eggs in, in, um, a hatchery facility where the water's pure and there's no predation, raising them up until they're smolts. And then, which is, you know, like five, six, seven inches long, and then releasing them into the river where they go out to the ocean and they live and then they come back and you repeat it. And the intent is if we do that enough, we'll increase the numbers. Yeah. So the intent is we put more fish in the river that go out to the ocean. We'll get more fish that come back, but there were all these, and it provided a really convenient way that you could, um, develop industry, which is damaging sort of the natural spawning habitat, whether it's mining or, or logging or, um, building shopping malls or houses or roads, like any of the things that cause problems in the tributaries where the fish spawn and rear or building dams, right? Like that's a big one. It cuts off the whole river above the dam. Um, what's easy, rear, what's rear spawn and rear, rear like raising up. Oh, like, raise. Oh, oh, gotcha. 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 Yeah. Um, sorry. And, um, so the hatchery technology that was developed actually at the university of Washington, um, you know, 150 years ago, was really um, a mitigation or a, a way to make up for destroying habitat. And so it was really embraced by people that wanted dams for hydroelectric power, that wanted to clear cut for cheap wood products. Uh, you know, even now people that want to build malls, like whatever you did that was damaging to the river, you could make up for it by putting in hatcheries. That's the theory. That's the theory. Um, the reality of it is, is that, um, because of a whole slew of factors, um, that when you raise these domestic fish and put them out into the wild, they actually result in fewer fish coming back, you know, and it's counterintuitive, right? It feels like if we nurture these fish and we put yeah. more of them up, more will come back. What are some of the reasons why that is? So one of the primary reasons is inbreeding and domestication, that those fish keep coming back. And over generations, they um, the natural selection genetically is for them to be adapted to be raised in, in concrete environments where there is no predation. So they don't, they don't genetically have the instincts to avoid predators, to be able to find food on their own, to, um, to survive in the wild. And what happens is when we put those out there, when they come back, some of them, you know, very few come back, but we've made up for that by releasing more and more, you know, millions and millions of fish, even if we're only getting a 10th of a percent of them back. But the ones that come back, which goes to the, this is not working or the, the cost of it, right. That you're getting to like, right. And so, but yeah, we spent billions of dollars to do this, but what happens is some of those fish spawn with the wild fish. And so you have these very poor genetics polluting the wild gene pool that was, you know, over millions of years evolved to survive all the hazards that a wild fish has to survive. So like, for example, if two wild fish return to a stream to spawn and they've survived all the predators as babies and the, seals and sharks and everything out in the ocean and fought their way back up the river and they've survived to spawn. Those are the fittest of the fit fish. They were like the best, right? If they spawn and let's say the female has 5,000 eggs, they're buried in gravel and only the very few strongest of those 5,000 can actually fight their way up through the gravel to be, you know, a half an inch long. And of those fish, only a tiny percentage of those are quick enough to avoid getting eaten by other fish and birds. 
to survive to be smolts where they're seven or eight inches long. Only a handful of those survive the journey down to the ocean where there's seals and diving birds and everything. And so if after all of that, out of those 5,000 eggs, if two fish survive to return, you're at a steady population, right? Replacement value. So, and those two that return, if three return, you have a growing population, right? If one returns, you have a shrinking population. And this is based on just one, one, um, one female fish laying eggs. One spawning yeah. pair. So yeah. we're considering okay. we start we're breaking it down to this one. I got it. Yeah. And if you get two back from those two, you have replacement value and across the population, that would be a steady, a stable population. Um, in contrast, when you raise fish in a hatchery, a hundred percent of the eggs survive because they're raised in aerated trays that have perfect water temperature and clarity and cleanliness. A hundred percent of them hatch or 99% of them hatch. At the next stage of life, a hundred percent of them survive. And so you've basically taken natural selection out of the equation. And so you have millions of small fish that maybe only a hundred really would have survived in the wild. And you release all of them out to the ocean and very few of them will survive, but we put so many out there that enough survived to come back to create a fishery. And out of that fishery, a number of them won't be captured and they will spawn with the wild fish. And in a first generation of a wild and hatchery pair that spawn together, the survival rate of their offspring is, is cut by about 40%. So now we're not getting two, we're getting, yeah. Yeah. And so you can see what happens is that by releasing hatchery fish, you're actually on a path to extinction. Yeah, that sucks. And so we have seen these huge declines in my lifetime that are, you know, I think, you know, when, when I was fishing the Skykomish and the Skagit in the eighties or in the nineties, um, we were fishing on about 2% of the historic steelhead run. And we thought the fishing was pretty good. I yeah. mean, we were, we were, you know, I mean, I think there were a couple years where I averaged like 1.7, 1.8 fish per trip, which for steelhead fishing is really good. Yeah. Um, but that was on 2% of the historic run size on that river. And so you start to think about abundance. And if we were anywhere close to historic run size, it would be too easy. Like steelhead fishing, it wouldn't, that challenge wouldn't be there. So I think it's instructive to know that just because our baselines keep shifting, right? Like we keep saying they closed the hatchery on the Skagit River uh, 12 years ago, and it's finally gotten back to enough where the state feels like, you know, the rebound is in effect and there's enough fish that we could fish for them. So they reopened it this year. Is that because of hatchery stuff though? Is it like just, well, they put so much out there and more came back? Or no, no, it's, this is all like, the hatchery operated for years and the runs got worse and worse every year. There were fewer fish coming back. Yeah. 12 years ago, they closed the hatchery. Oh, so it wasn't just, okay, gotcha. And as the hatchery closed each year, it's gotten a little better. The fish are coming back without the hatchery. <laughs> Mother nature knows how to do it, right? Yeah, it's amazing. And we'd spend, you know, just on that hatchery alone, millions of dollars. If we had not spent that in the beginning, we'd have much more fish than we have now. But the point I was trying to make is that, um, you know, the run size I think now is 5,000 fish, 6,000 fish. And uh, I was talking to a guy up there that was going up there to fish. And uh, he said, I don't know why it's so restricted. Like, this is the most fish that that, that river can hold is five, 6,000 fish. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to send you a chart of catch statistics from the 60s and the 70s on that same river. And it will show you that before the hatchery, we were sustainably harvesting anywhere from 10 to 30,000 fish per year. And they kept coming back. It wasn't until we built the hatchery, you know, once the hatchery was in effect, the harvest was 200 fish yeah. per year. Yeah. 
Um, and so now the baseline has shifted to where people go, oh, 5,000 is the most that river can hold. Like that's the most fish that could come out of that river. When we had decades where we were catching 20,000 and 30,000 fish a year, taking them out of the spawning class, and it still sustained itself. And so like it's human nature for our baselines to shift and just feel like the current norm is the norm. And so I think it's really important that fishermen know how much better it could be and not just accept what it is. Yeah. I think that's super important to know what's possible. So you don't come up short in your efforts to kind of help the habitat and you know, like, Oh yeah, we're good. We're done. But like, there's, there's more to do or we could do help out more. Yeah. That's super interesting. And I just think that part was eye opening to me. Like, you know, I'm sure there was other things, like you said, politics that go into it and such, but, the, the intent is, well, we're going to do this to help the population and we'll just keep doing the same. And it's just, it's not working. Right. And we have no evidence that it's working and it's actually making things worse. And, uh, it's just unfortunate. It takes long, that long to kind of like admit that. And that also I think is human nature in some ways, right? We think we got it all figured out. We think we can solve these problems. Yeah. We think we can engineer our way out of anything. Yeah. And, that's served us really well. I mean, it's created modern medicine. A whole bunch of us that are alive now would have been dead in the old days, right? And, sure. There's good and bad. Yeah. You know, and we've created technology to fly around the country, to go to the moon, like, like you know, computers, cell phones. We've created a lot of things that are probably beneficial, um, but hatcheries just aren't one of them. And <laughs> we, yeah, we really just want to believe that we can injure, in, that we can develop the rivers for commercial purposes. We can destroy the habitat, and our engineering will fix it. And yeah. it's just proven not to be true. And it it's because of the politics that I mentioned earlier. You know, salmon and steelhead in the Pacific Northwest are the most politicized fish probably in the world. In that there uh, there you know there's commercial fishing interests, there's recreational fishing interests. There are uh, tribal fishing rights that are incredibly important. There is, um, you know, development. There is industry. There's all these factors in play. Yeah. And it just makes it um, makes it very difficult to make what appears to be a clear-cut scientific decision to pull the plug on these hatcheries that we could stop spending the money and get more fish. Like, why wouldn't we do that? But the politics just has so far made it really impossible to do. And I, I think it's for your listeners that aren't Pacific Northwest steelhead or salmon fishermen, I think it's important to know, too, because, um, you know, the same thing happened in Montana, that that when they removed the hatcheries. I was going to say, this sounds like eerily familiar to what I've heard about Montana and all the pride that those those fisher fly fishers have in the fact that we learned this lesson of we don't stock over wild trout. And yeah. I, so and I hear the, people complaining wild, about that back East. In the wild trout rivers in Montana, you know, they had a years and years of decline in the sixties of numbers of fish. And they looked into it and realized it was because they were planted. The, the declines were happening where they were planting hatchery fish. So when they killed the program there, um, within four years, the trout biomass in those rivers was up, uh, the trout population was up 800% and the biomass was up a thousand percent. So it meant that there were more fish and bigger fish right away from just not planting fish. So they stopped spending the money and it turned into a world-class trout fishery. You know, there's, there's a program going right now where they're trying to figure out hatcheries for bonefish in the Florida Keys. And I feel like, man, you guys are barking up the wrong tree. Like you got to come and see what happened here. See what happened in Montana. Um, but the lure of that technology is just so juicy that people can't stay away from it. Well, you don't have to face the bigger problems, right? Cause you're like, Oh, we got this. Yeah. We'll just make more fish. We'll just create them in a, lab and like put them out there and exactly can you talk a little bit about um you know maybe briefly or another thing that you said that i thought was kind of a win-win is maybe some of the fishing um technology like commercial fishing that could be 
you know, adjusted that might be helpful to steelhead as well? Or if, if that's something you want to talk about? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of new, here's where technology, you know, it's actually old technology, but there's some technological solutions around, um, you know, I mean, first of all, we need to fish for commercial harvest uh, closer to the rivers where the fish originate. So we know which fish we're harvesting. Can you say that again? I think that's really important. And, and why is that? We need to fish close to the rivers because so traditionally a lot of the commercial harvest for salmon is out in the open ocean where all the different rivers fishes are mixing and mingling. And so when you're harvesting say a Chinook salmon out in the Pacific ocean, you don't know if it came from an endangered stock on some river or if it came from a river that has a harvestable abundance of fish. Like, Yep, that makes but sense. If we move the harvest close to the rivers, then you're harvesting the fish that are just returning to the specific rivers. And where there's places that have an abundance that could be harvested, then you know that you're targeting the right fish. So I think that's one thing. Well, that's a win-win, right? Because eventually, like the, if you're fishing for these, you, you you want the resource to, even if you're a commercial fisherman, you want the resource to continue, right? If yeah. you chop down all the trees, like, well, now my forest business, my, my, my forestry business is out of business. I got no more trees, you know, like, yeah. so, so yeah, keep going. Sorry. Well, no. So, so in these mixed stock fisheries like that, where the fish are from all over the place out in the open ocean, the seasons end up getting limited by the lowest common denominator, you know? So if there's one speed, one run of salmon that's out there mixed in, it might only be a tiny percentage of it that's endangered. They could shut down your whole fishery. Yeah. that see, this is, this is the thing that about the book that I thought was so great is that you, you highlight these things that are like, it's, it's almost like uh, we're trying to help, but we're hurting, you know? It's yeah. like, so it's like, if, dude, we're not saying you're not saying I don't want you to commercial fish. Like you're saying like there's, you can do it better for you. I'm trying to help you. Yeah. And the other thing is like in places like the wild fish conservancy has been running a program for the last three years of, um, uh, fish traps, pound nets in the Columbia river rather than gill nets. So gill nets basically kill everything that runs into them. And the gill netters only have about, you know, handful of days as a season because the endangered wild fish are getting killed in those nets along with hatchery fish and abundant fish with the with the pound nets or the fish traps the fish come in they're alive they're held in these in holding tanks basically and you can just harvest the ones that you know are not endangered and release yeah. the endangered ones without ever touching them and Is so, it because it's more expensive to do that? Because I mean, it, it sounds like if you do that, then you could actually catch more fish because they're going to open your season longer. Way more fish. You could fish every day of the year and make millions of dollars if you did that rather than be limited to what's often like eight days of fishing for the whole year that doesn't even cover the cost of your boat. Yeah. Um, but there's resistance, you know, because people want to keep doing things the way we've always done them, you know, and so... Um, yeah, that's amazing. And I appreciate you sharing that. You talk about it in the book and I, I, I think is really eye-opening and in ways that I wasn't expecting, I guess. And we've discussed some of those. So I appreciate that. Um, Dylan, before I ask you my last question, how can people find out more about you or um, get a copy of the book for sure um, or find out some more about some of the topics we've discussed about Steelhead? Um. Easiest way to reach me is on Instagram. Um, and it's just my name, Dylan Tomina. Um, I also have a website up with relatively updated information around the book and what I'm up to. And the Instagram feed, I think, goes to the website as well. It's just uh, my first and last name, dylantomina.com is a website. Uh, and the book is available uh, anywhere, <laughs> you know, as my publisher would say, at fine booksellers everywhere. Uh, uh, you can get it anywhere you want. If somebody wants an inscribed or signed copy of the book, um, you can call or go online to Eagle Harbor books, 
which is my local bookstore here in Washington. And they have a program where you can buy the book from them. And they call me every few weeks and I go down there and sign a bunch of books and then they ship them to you. So um, if you want a personalized book, that's an easy way to do that. And thanks for the commercial. There's, there's, that's it for my, uh, my commercial message. No, you deserve it, man. It's a well-written book. Uh, and I'm really enjoying it. And, um, so I appreciate that. Last question. You ready? Yeah. If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more of a tactical piece and one more philosophical, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? Wow. That, <laughs> that is really a great question. Um, how'd you think of that? Jeez. I, um, okay. So tactically, I think I would tell myself, um, that you, you just got to go. You just, you know, like you don't know if you don't go right. Like, so just spend the time and try to be patient and not get frustrated when, uh, you know, things aren't ideal and just keep going. Cause you learn something all the time. Um, and philosophically, um, maybe it's sort of converse to that, but philosophically, I would say, um, I would have liked to have known earlier how much to value the people that are come into your life through fishing, the mentors and all that stuff. I think, you know, when I was young, it was easy to just kind of take the information and keep moving on. Like that's the way it's supposed to be. And in retrospect, like, I feel like I didn't potentially have enough value. Like I didn't understand how important those things were. And so I guess I would say, um, you think it's about the fishing, but it's really about the people. Well, that's something that I definitely got from the book. And so I want to say thank you for, uh, sharing that message through the book. Cause I think it's helping people kind of you know, those things that you were talking about and the information you shared, like it comes out in the book. And so I think, like I said, I just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing with putting out these ideas and, and get people aware. And then what you're doing for the steelhead population as well. And, and lastly, just thanks for taking the time to be on the show. I've obviously I've really enjoyed talking with you. have been talking a while and um, it's just been a pleasure and I've learned a ton and thanks for being on the show. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Um, super fun conversation. We'll have to go fishing together sometime now. That's gotta be the next step. Right. So, um, you know, let me know if you're flying out this way and we'll, uh, we'll try and figure something out. Thanks for listening to the Wade out there fly fishing podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes for more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There.